You're listening to Irish Radio Canada at home and abroad, and uh, transition of power is something that's in the topics of conversation at the moment, and every few years there are transitions in power, and one of them happens at the Embassy of Ireland in Canada, as it does happen in embassies all around the world, and the diplomatic staff, staff are on a time schedule where they're posted, and then stamp their mark on wherever they are. And uh, Our ambassador in Canada, Jim Kelly, arrived last August and has had the opportunity to hopefully get to know a little bit of the country and get a little to know a little bit of the feel of the people in the country and may have even come to figure out how he's going to live his few years here. Jim Kelly, welcome to At Home and Abroad. Good afternoon and good afternoon to you and, and to all of your listeners. So, um, Jim, before we get on to Ottawa and uh, what you're, you've found so far and what you hope to achieve, who's Jim Kelly? Well, before I before I answer that, Austin, um, I just want to say a little word of thanks to yourself, actually, because um, you were talking about how you prepare for transitions, and one of the the things that I found quite useful, I have to say, in preparing to uh, to come to Canada in the months prior to to taking up the post was your very own uh, your very own show here on podcasts. So I was a an avid listener and learned all sorts of interesting things. I felt about the uh, about the Irish community in Canada, and indeed about the history uh, of the Irish community in Canada as well. So so thanks for that. On the existential question, who am I? Um, I suppose the first thing to say about myself is that I'm a Dubliner. Uh, I'm from Walkinstown uh, on, on the south side of Dublin, um, sort of Walkinstown, Drimna area, if people know it. Uh, I went to school in, uh, to the Christian Brothers in Drimna Castle. And I suppose one of the things that's slightly unusual as an Irish person about me in a, a nation of, of emigrants is that as far back as I can trace it on all sides, uh, my background is Dublin and central Dublin, um, looking at the, even as a lot of people have, back to the, the census from 1901 and 1911, which is such a fantastic genealogical resource in Ireland now. As far back as I can see, it's Dublin. So that, uh, that meant as a child we didn't have relatives from the country to go and visit. So that kind of set us, uh, set us apart a little bit. I think from uh, a little bit from uh, you know from from a lot of my friends in school certainly. Um, my wife Anne uh, is from County Limerick, so uh, I haven't entirely stuck to to Dublin. And we have a young family, two young daughters who are are 13 and 11. Orla and Kira are their names. And so I think I'm probably the first ambassador here in quite a, a long time, as I understand it, with a, a young family. So between the the very busy job and that, I'm kept uh, very well occupied. And, and I would imagine family life can be as busy and probably requiring stronger diplomatic st- skills than work at times. You certainly get the chance to test them out, Austin, I think, is, uh, is, is probably the, the best thing to say about it. But uh, I suppose the only other, the only other thing to, to say to give people some kind of insight into me is that there are two, I suppose, lifelong abiding interests that I've had, or two areas of abiding interest. One is uh, the whole area of politics and history and current affairs, which I suppose won't surprise in terms of uh, in terms of the job I'm doing now, and the other is sport. I'm a, I'm a sports nut uh, of all sports, particularly uh, GAA, soccer, rugby, and including uh, you know in my time in New York, I got very much into baseball as well. So um, I devote a great deal of uh, a great deal of interest to, to, to those things. And really going back to when I was a when I was a child, um, my own sort of early childhood would have coincided with the rise of the, the great Dublin football team of the 1970s. And my father, who was a big soccer fan then used to bring me to see League of Ireland matches and on an annual pilgrimage to Old Trafford to see Manchester United play as well. Um, so sport is, is important to me. These days I'm a, I'm a runner. I'm a little long of the tooth for contact sport, but, uh, but I do a bit of running. And then on the, on the other side, in terms of politics and, and history and current affairs, I mean, maybe just to illustrate how much of an interest that's been to me. When I was a, I can recall as a young boy of about seven or eight, I used to pester my parents to let me stay up and watch election program results uh, to the point where I remember once my mother uh, sending me to bed complaining at about 2 a.m., and uh, when I woke up in the morning, she'd taken pity on me and written out the, the seat totals for whatever election it was out on a piece of cardboard. So I thought this was perfectly normal, Austin, until I had a, a seven-year-old of my own and realized that it perhaps wasn't, uh, wasn't standard practice. 
Right. So you mentioned sport and a keen interest. Were mm. you uh, active sporting in your teenage years at school? Yeah. In, enthusiastic rather than accomplished, I think, would be the best way to describe it. I played uh, Gaelic football in my teenage years for our local club in in, uh, in, in Drimland Walkerstown, which was on Koshlon. Um So I would have played, you know, 11 through about 16. Um, as I say, I was keen, but not particularly talented. So it's been a kind of a vicarious love of sport, if you like. That uh, that often takes hold, I think, even more in people when they uh, when they don't have a very sort of you know a strong career in it themselves. But uh, I'm, I'm a huge a huge fan of most sports. Hurling would be my probably my favourite sport of all. But uh, but I, I really follow follow quite a bit of it. So given, as you say, a keen interest in politics from a very young age, I guess a natural progression was then into the civil service. Yeah, I suppose it was, but like a lot of people, I suppose um, you know the path doesn't always turn out to be as as linear as that. When when I when I left school, I did study history and politics in UCD um, for 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 most of a year. But this was you know Dublin in the in the the, the mid 1980s, and it was a it was a tough time economically, and you know arts degrees at the time were no guarantee of uh, no guarantee of, of 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 a job. And I kind of reflected at the time on whether I might maybe study by night instead and I did pick up a job actually uh, in the civil service uh, uh, not in the Department of Foreign Affairs at the time but uh, a clerical position and I decided I would study by night instead but in those days arts degrees were only offered every three years so I had the choice of waiting for three years or moving ahead and studying something else and so I studied commerce which I felt would kind of broaden if you like my my experience and, and my my prospects on the job market but uh, but never lost uh, the interest in in, in, in politics and, and, and current affairs and history I went from uh, when I completed my commerce degree to work for Accenture the um, the global management consultancy I worked for them in Dublin and, and, and did some some training with them abroad as well and after a few years there I found my way back into this whole area and, and joined the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade which was in 1993 which feels like a, a long time ago now so, Jim, before you got yourself a real job, um, while you were a student, did you have any interesting summer jobs, travel? No, not not really. I'd say we weren't we weren't the most adventurous bunch in those days. So, um, no, I wouldn't have done done much by way of. There was a little bit of sort of work locally, but nothing nothing in terms of of, of travel. The J one I think was only really, uh, and that would be a regret actually that I didn't have the opportunity to 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 do something like a J one then. And, and then of course when you study by night, um, uh, you don't have uh, you don't have those those opportunities as well. So one of the things, and there were quite a, a group of us who you know, who worked in civil service or in banking who did our degrees by night and we'd have a certain amount of envy for the for the full time students with the opportunity to go to, to the US and, and elsewhere and, and gain those kind of experiences. So my travel experiences often really in 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 a professional sense came 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 much, much later. Right. So uh, when you did make it into the civil service, was it straight into foreign affairs or did you have to go through some no, departments? No, in, in, in my original, when I originally joined, which was, as I say, wasn't, you know, was a year or so out of school, I worked in, in the Department of Energy in a place called the Geological Survey, actually, but it was a clerical position, but a very interesting kind of introduction to the civil service. It was a, a scientific office, so quite atypical, if you like, of the, the civil service at the time. And then I was promoted and worked in the revenue commissioners for, for a number of years, which probably had me thinking more towards the business end of things as well. But when I left that, um, I left it to finish my degree full-time, the final year of my degree, and then I didn't subsequently go back to the, the civil service. I went off and worked for Accenture then and separately came in from the outside again, if you like, to join the, the Department of Foreign Affairs in, in 1993. So given the keen interest you then had in politics from a young age, were you ever tempted to join a political party and <laughs> consider running for election? No, I have to say quite honestly that I wasn't, Austin. I mean, you observe these things, of course, in you know, in your job and in in college as well. Of course, where political parties are present. I didn't come from any kind of a political background. We weren't a political house in, in any way, shape, or form. And I must say, you know, having worked over the years with uh, with with a lot of politicians of of you know of all parties and none, I actually have a great deal of admiration for people who are prepared to to join the the, the political life. I know they get a a tough time from from, from 
the media in particular at times and, and maybe sometimes you know on, on, on the substance people will, will feel that's deserved but as a life I think it's a very a very tough life your time is really not your own it's a it's a it's a life of service and certainly most people I've met were were highly motivated uh, you know for, for the right reasons to to join that life but it wouldn't have been for me I, I always felt it was very very difficult to imagine balancing any kind of, of, of family life with a, a life in politics and I suppose there are certain different types of qualities that may be required as well I saw myself as being close enough in terms of my interest in, in, in relation to the work work I do and that, that works better for me Jim you've um, sent me a, a list of a few pieces of music what do we uh, what do we break with yeah, well, I'm in your hands, as they say, Austin. I mean, I've I've included a few different things, um, which probably reflect my age to some extent. Some of it goes back to the the 70s and 80s, when I suppose, like a lot of people at that age, are listening to music quite intensely. Um, I used to be quite heavily involved in a, an Irish language club in in school in my sort of leaving cert year and thereabouts, and stayed involved in that and in a little bit on the then in terms of Borna Gaelga and so forth afterwards. I had a great we we played a lot of Irish music in that context, and I had a great deal of interest uh, in traditional and folk music, particularly bands like the, the Bothy Band and Planksty. Uh, I think I've mentioned Freddie White as well mm-hmm. and Moving Hearts and a few other people. Not so, you know, I have quite a broad range of, of interest musically, but that at the time would have been would have been uh, something that I was I was very uh, very keen on and continued to be. Uh, I think I mentioned a tune, but an instrumental tune by the Bothy Band called Amazing mm-hmm. Mitchell Sound, which I think is a beautiful a beautiful piece. And uh, yeah, I certainly keen to hear that. That's the Bathy Band and the Maids of Mitchellstown. And as Ambassador Kelly mentioned, uh, it was one of the pieces of music he really likes. If you stay tuned after we have finished our interview with the Ambassador, I will play all the music that he selected at the track. Welcome back. And we're chatting with Jim Kelly. And he is the current Irish Ambassador to Canada. Took up his position in August and uh, has been now in residence for coming on four, five, six, not yet six months. But before coming to Ottawa, uh, spent a career in the public service. Uh, Jim, before um, you were were telling how you'd been in the Revenue Commissioners before you got to the Department of Foreign Affairs, you transitioned then over to Foreign Affairs and what brought you over there and in what capacity? Yeah, so I, I joined as a third secretary, which is the the entry grade to the department. It's a, it's the, we have specific grades, as you may be aware, in the foreign ministry, uh, rather than general service grades. And third secretary is the is the the joining grade and and, and a, considered a training grade as well. So in November of 1993, I joined there. And there's a, a certain, if you like, arbitrariness as a joiner as to where you end up, obviously, because um, because it's your it's your first uh, it's your first assignment. And I was very fortunate initially to be given an assignment in the Anglo-Irish Division uh, dealing with uh, Northern Ireland related issues and this if you think of the the time that it was Austin was in the period just before the uh, just before the ceasefires the paramilitary ceasefires so I joined about three weeks after the terrible Shankill bomb uh, the, in the, in, in, which you know was one of the one of the worst incidents of, of, of the troubles so the period that followed was a very intensive period in terms of political negotiations I mean obviously I was a very junior official and wasn't directly involved in any of that but to see that up close was a was a really interesting formative experience uh, indeed as somebody who grew up you know uh, at the you know during the, the period when the troubles were that worst it was it was really very interesting and very valuable experience to 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 get to see uh, to get to see how uh, how the department worked on those important issues during the during that year of 1984 so it was a very good a very good start i think uh, in the department you would have worked with the, our previous ambassador then in, in while he was involved in the north 
No, I never worked directly with him. Actually, um, I think he may have been in—he may have been in Belfast during that period itself, and my work would have been more would have been more Dublin-based. I worked very closely with um, Declan Keller, who's now our ambassador to the European Union in Brussels, and um, with a number of other a number of other colleagues who've gone on to very senior positions abroad. David Donoghue, who's our ambassador to the United Nations. And Sean O'Higgin was the, who subsequently was our ambassador in Washington, was the head of the division. So all people who made a huge contribution uh, to the uh, to the very important work that we that was being done on the on the peace process at the time. So it was a very interesting grounding, if you like, in one very particular but very important area of the of the department's work. Jim, the North is going through a transition at the moment and Mark McGuinness has announced that he's now going to stand for re-election <coughs> and he has been um, receiving accolades from both sides uh, since he announced his decision. Um, how would you rate and view back in, from your experience of that time? Yeah, well, I suppose what I always say to people when you consider the situation in Northern Ireland, and I think my the, the experience I've just described is is sort of you know was formative for me in that context is it's very important at difficult times in in Northern Ireland and in relation to the the peace process and the and the current. Uh, impasse, if you like, for the institutions that has led to the calling of, of new assembly elections. Never to lose sight of how the situation used to be, how the situation was when I started, for example, working in the, in the Department of Foreign Affairs and how it was in the decades before that. I think I would tend always to take a, you know, an optimistic view of things in that context and, and say to people to, it's important to look how far we've come and the gains that have been made, things that have been proved politically possible that were frankly unimaginable at that stage in terms of the uh, in terms of the the, institu- the power sharing institutions the good friday agreement and all of that so i mean the government's approach now austin you know hasn't changed in that regard we regret that the that we've had this impasse and that the the, the institutions have uh, you know that that we've come to the the situation where there have had to be new assembly elections but but our eyes continue to be on the on the the key principles here on our commitment to protecting the integrity of the agreement and supporting the the stable operation of the institutions. And in that context, I mean, the government have been clear in their their public messaging to all sides to urge you know parties to act responsibly um, and to bear in mind that uh, you know effective devolved government underpinned by a you know a real spirit of partnership is what the, what the people of Northern Ireland voted for uh, in 1998 uh, following the Good Friday Agreement, and we we believe it's what they expect their politicians to deliver. And where I was coming from to some degree was Martin McGuinness, coming from his background, succeeded in building bridges across the divide and gaining the respect of Ian Paisley and many others. Yes, no, absolutely. I mean, as I say, I think, you know, a lot, all of the people involved really in the, you know, have come a very long way. I, I, I come back to what I said, Austin, that, that when you, when you look at, at where we are today, uh, and, it, you know, you could take a snapshot of today, even with the difficulties that there are, and take a snapshot of the period before the ceasefires, or even in, for a few years afterwards, I think you know, even those who uh, even those who are critical would have to concede that we've 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 come such a long way uh, in in relation to the situation in Northern Ireland. And it's it's really important now, irrespective of you know any difficulties between individuals uh, at a political level, that all parties behave responsibly and ensure that we safeguard the the gains that have been made in the interests of all of the all of the people of Ireland. I wasn't going to go there yet, but I will, because we're talking about the North, and the North now as part of the United Kingdom, uh, Brexit is happening, and Mm -hmm. it's going to have an impact on the North-South because of the North not being a part of Europe and uh, not being part of the common market, and of course Ireland still being the only uh, country, English-speaking country in the Eurozone. Um, The do you perceive that the challenges confronting both the Irish and the British government and for Northern Ireland as something that um, will take a long period and, and how do you view that scenario? Yeah, well, I think when you when you when you're talking about Brexit, I mean, Northern Ireland is obviously a, a huge and important dimension of that. I, but I, I think when I talk about Brexit, it's important to kind of look at everything in the round and 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 to be clear about the the, the messages that we would want to communicate in relation to that. I mean, the first thing to say, Austin, is my my 
final assignment before I, I came out here to Canada was to, to set up and run a, a policy planning, um, a small policy planning unit within uh, the department. And the first thing I did, and it goes back almost, um, you know, it goes back 18 months, almost two years now actually, was to do a piece of work internally for the government on what the implications of a Brexit from an Irish perspective would be. Now, this was back before, not only before the referendum, but before even the last British election when, you know, Brexit was still only a conceptual notion being talked about politically by, by, by parts of the political class in the UK. But already we could begin to see the sort of implications this would have from an Irish perspective and the kind of things that I identified in the, in the research work that I did then um, for, the, for the government internally uh, are very much, I have to say, the same sorts of issues that we're, we're now talking about today. So, I mean, there are basically four priorities, if you like, that, uh, that, that the Irish government has going into to these negotiations once they are triggered under Article 50. I mean, the first is the whole question of our, our economic and trading arrangements. Um, obviously, the UK is a very important uh, a very important economic partner for us, still our single most significant bilateral trading partner, although with much, a much smaller percentage of, of trade than historically would have been would have been the case. Then the second area is the whole area of safeguarding the Good Friday Agreement that you that you advert to there, the whole question of the peace process and the issues around you know the risk of a hard border and so forth. Uh, the third area then is maintaining the common travel area with Britain, which is of such importance um, to both to Irish people and I think to British people too. When you consider the um, when you consider the links that there are at every level, and I think it's it was very significant that uh, the British Prime Minister Theresa May in her uh, in her speech this week, talking about uh, about how she saw Brexit, uh, listed uh, the common travel area as one of one of her key priorities, the preservation of that. So that way it was, I think, a, a positive sign. And then the fourth um, area really is the whole question of mapping a, a positive future direction for the EU itself with Ireland at its heart. And I think this is a very important point, Austin, as well, because obviously there's a you know there's quite a bit of debate about, uh, and I, which I think is a good thing, around all of these issues because there is such significance uh, to Ireland and to the interests of our people. But EU membership is, is overwhelmingly in Ireland's interest, and there's, there's, there's no question but that we will remain a, a member of the European Union uh, in any set of circumstances, regardless of the uh, regardless of the of the negotiations. And it's very important that we're clear um, to everybody, including with our EU partners, of course, um, that this is the case. Uh, and this reflects, I think, not just the not just the, the government's view, but also you know a polling shows it's the view of almost 90% of the public as well. So I think there's a very clear line on that, and that's very important in terms of, of how we approach and, and our bona fides, if you like, within the negotiations with our EU partners and with the UK. I would have to say what I find fascinating in this is that oftentimes, as a man on the street, you're not aware of the amount of work that is going on in the background. And while government might come out and say, well, we have been planning or we have been reviewing this, it's wonderful to hear how... 18 months ago, before even the British elections, what was going on? Because I say, as the man in the street, we're removed from all this and never aware. So that, that's tremendously insightful. Um, so uh, prior to that posting, and then you, when you started out in your diplomatic career coming in as a third secretary, um, were you hopeful at that stage or had you ambition that you would like to go abroad or <clears throat> did you see your career keeping you in Ireland? No, I mean generally um when when you join, you know, it is with the expectation that you that you will go abroad. I mean it's not it's not entirely clear Austin when when you start whether it'll be within a year or two years, but uh, but you certainly join I think in, in in most cases with the expectation that you will you will do a portion of your your career abroad. I mean in the end as we like to say it is the foreign service. So uh so you know you 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 always have that you always have that in mind. So I would have expected to spend probably a couple of years at home before going away. And as it happened, I spent close to two years before taking up my first posting, which was in in Copenhagen in uh, in Denmark, which was uh, which was very enjoyable. Um, post and, and quite a good post I think to get a if you like a, a rounded training in the type of uh, work that diplomats do abroad 
it's, it certainly wasn't a hardship post by any manner or means. But we, you know, we've quite, a, as is the case in here indeed, and in a lot of uh, our embassies, we've quite a small team. So even at a relatively junior stage in your career, you find yourself having to do very broad range of work. So I mean, this is one thing I think that for for diplomats of the Irish service is perhaps. Uh, if you like an advantage or something that's more rewarding than you might experience in a larger diplomatic service where you end up doing you know a small area of specialized work due to the uh, to to how uh, the, the larger amount of resources on how the work is divided so i think for irish diplomats quite early on um you get exposed to uh, you know to to uh, to very good opportunities in terms of of the range of work you can do so in copenhagen for example i would have been responsible for running the you know not only the consular services and passport side of things, but a lot of cultural work as well, a certain amount of of economic work, and then subbing in for the other two uh, colleagues in the embassy on, on, on whatever else needed doing. So it was quite a quite a good broad uh, grounding, if you like, in, in bilateral diplomatic work. I later did multilateral, but in bilateral diplomatic work at, a, at an early stage of, of your career. And I suppose in in that context as well, it brings you to the forefront very quickly where you as a representative of Ireland, um, you can't afford to be shy when you're finding no. yourself in front of, an app, in, of a microphone. No, absolutely, absolutely not. No. no, I have to say, uh, shyness would not be an asset in uh, in this particular line of work, Austin. Uh, no more than it would be in your own. Um, so no, so yeah, you're you know you're you're. You get out there quite quickly, and I think that's a that's a good thing. And you know, it, it's not for everybody as well. In fairness, you know, some people will join and and will realise after a year or two that you know it's not what they want. And and it's important to understand, you know, who you are yourself and 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 how well uh, the work is a fit for for your life too. Because it's 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 a way of life and not just a job in that sense. I mean, I've spent of the last. 20 years, 13, I think it is abroad. So, you know, that's a considerable chunk of your, of both your working life and your family life. So Mm -hmm. it really needs to be something that you care about and something that you want to do. And I mean, I can say quite honestly, Austin, having, you know, worked, uh, say I worked in the private sector as well. I mean, I'm, very much here by choice, both in terms of the work and in terms of Canada, where I'm delighted to be. But, you know, I'm, I'm, very proud to be a diplomat. I'm very proud to represent my country. Like, like, I think, like, like all of us, I, I see it as a as a huge privilege to to represent Irish people and their interests, whether it's at home or abroad. Uh, and you know, it's very important to recognise um, the privilege that's involved there. And uh, you know, so so it's uh, it's more to me. It's more than 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 just a job. It's uh, it's uh, it's sort of uh, I, I see it as as something that I'm I'm very lucky and very proud to be doing. Unlike many countries, the Irish diplomatic service uh, it's career diplomats that are mm-hmm. posted, yeah. and that I I often think it must be very disheartening and not being critical of any country, but for people who have worked their way up through the ranks. But where the ambassador, the ambassador is a political appointment, um, that, it might, that the aspirations that somebody joining can have, like you had, that you can ultimately arrive at a position where you do represent your country in yeah. the fashion that you do, um, is, is certainly. I, I must say, I, I feel somewhat for the others that it must be difficult. Yes, I mean, I'm sure you'll understand, Austin. I'm not going to be critical of anybody else's system either. And of course, it's a matter for each uh, for each country and for each uh, for each government service to determine how they run these things. But it is true, though, that we have a we have a system that that that's professional appointments only, and that you're you know that you're trained and and you you take on successive responsibility as you go through your career. And and I feel that works quite well. I mean, other other countries do it differently um, for different reasons. And as I say, I wouldn't I wouldn't be critical of that but I, I certainly would, would recognise that for, for people like me the career that we have in the diplomatic service we're very fortunate I think uh, with the kind of opportunities we have and that none of those opportunities that you like are sort of sequestered away from us in that sense yeah. Jim we're going to go for another little piece of music we've had the body band where are we going? 
Yeah, well, I'm just looking here at, at, at what I sent you. Um, Freddie White um, from Cork is uh, is a singer, I must say, that I've always been been very fond of. I think he's one of our, our greatest interpreters, if you like, of song and, and, and has such a huge range in terms of uh, in terms of, you know, folk music, jazz, rock uh, and so on. And I think um, I, I used to, to go and see Freddie when he was and showing my age here, but when he was a kind of resident in the Bagot Inn in Dublin in the 80s, and I had the, the good fortune to meet him. Um, it was one of the nice things about this job, actually, is that you often get to meet, um, you know, people active in music or in art or so forth that you very much admire. And I had the good fortune to meet Freddie when I was on posting in Copenhagen, where he came to play a number of gigs. He's a very nice guy, I must say, as well. Um, the song I've suggested, uh, Austin, goes a good long way back, but it's a, it's a, a song called Martha, a Tom Waits song, which I think Freddie does a particularly, uh, particularly nice version of. So, uh, so yeah, so I'd like to do that. You're listening to At Home and Abroad on Irish Radio Canada, and we're chatting with Ambassador Jim Kelly, and this is Freddie White and Martha, and we'll be back with you in a moment or two. Operator, number please It's been so many years Will she remember my old voice As I fight back the tears Hello, hello there Is this Martha? This is old Tom Frost And I am calling Long distance Don't worry about the cost Cause it's been 40 years or more now Martha, please recall Meet me out for coffee And we'll talk about it all That is Freddie White, Martha. Stay tuned after we finish our conversation with Ambassador Kelly and I'll play his full selection for you uh, coming up a little after 9 o'clock uh, six or seven tracks that he had selected. Welcome back and we are chatting with Ambassador Jim Kelly, who is the current Irish Ambassador to Canada, and that was Freddie White. Um, Ambassador, you mentioned that uh, your first posting abroad brought you to Copenhagen. Uh, Before you arrived in Ottawa then, you would have had a number of other postings. Where did you get to travel to? Yeah, so the, the the way, I mean, people have different experiences, Austin. There's no single model. For me, how it's kind of worked is that I've tended to be, in fact, just as it happens, it's worked at the same each time that I've been three years at home between uh, between postings. So after Copenhagen, I was at home for three years working on the political side mainly. And then I went to Brussels to work in our European Union, uh, a representation to the European Union, which was very interesting in a number of respects. It's a very different type of job, obviously. It's multilateral negotiations work. At the time, there were 15 members of the European Union. While I was there, uh, we had the, the enlargement that had expanded it to, uh, to 25 at the time. This was uh, I was there from 2001 to 5, so this was in 2004, and it was under the Irish presidency of the European Union that that big enlargement took place. And one of the interesting things then, and this is back before the Lisbon Treaty changed things a little, but back then, when you know, when the country had the presidency of the European Union, you were chairing the negotiations for that six months, which was a fantastic experience uh, professionally as well. And personally, really very interesting too. And I, I was working on in relation to development aid and also on some issues relating to Africa, but mainly development aid, and had the chance to sort of chair the European Union's uh, work, if you like, on development aid at working level during that six months. So you really get an insight into how the European Union does its business. Um, you know, and this is one of the things about being a small member state in the European Union that you, you have the chance, if you like, to you know to leverage your objectives and your goals as a country uh, in individual areas and put them in that bigger context and we were able to do that in in small ways because of course it is a it's always about negotiation and compromise but you're able to try to to work some of your your priorities and some of the things that 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 you know that Ireland stands for and believes in into into the work you do and for example in the development area we have a you know I think as it's very well known a, a strong development aid program uh, which has increased considerably in the last uh, in the last 20 years which is very heavily focused on poverty reduction particularly in sub-Saharan Africa. So, you know, you're able to bring some of those objectives and to try to, 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 to ensure that they're properly reflected in the work that the European Union does as well. Um, so this is a way in which the European Union is, if you like,
like a broader context for our, for our foreign policy too, and to to sort of work there for the the, the, the period and uh, and in particular the the presidency period and have the chance to kind of if you like drive those things a little bit as well was a really very interesting experience. And again, what I'm finding fascinating in listening to you is that there's so much goes on behind the scenes and there's this stereotypical perception of, be it politicians, government, public servants, uh, that uh, it's a cushy number, but quite obviously... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> there are benefits, but there's a lot going on behind the scenes, quite obviously. Yeah, no, I mean, you know, I don't, <laughs> I don't want to, I don't want to come across as as bail booked on any of this stuff. No, no, not that at would, all. Wouldn't be, quite, wouldn't be at all fair. But no, but no, I mean, you know, as I as I said a little while back, there, it's a, it's a it's a real privilege to to represent your country, and I think the great majority of us who do so, I would say, certainly anyone I know, uh, you know, is very conscious of that. Um, in multilateral work, it's a very particular type of work it's it's you know not always the most glamorous work it's long hours of negotiation um it can be frustrating at times because you know if you think about it this way Austin if you try to put 28 people you know into a room and get them to agree on anything um even if they're all of the same nationality and cultural background um you might find that that takes some time so take 28 people from different countries with perhaps different language backgrounds different cultural backgrounds and try to get them to agree on a piece of public policy and that's going to take some time too so I understand the frustrations people have with the European Union and even more so at times with the United Nations where I also worked like a month later. But um, my view on, on these things is that if they didn't exist, we would have had to invent them. And this is particularly true, I think, of the United Nations. And while, you know, sometimes people can focus quite a lot on what they don't do well and, you know, justifiably criticize both the EU and the United Nations for, 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 for different aspects, I think a lot of very important work is done nonetheless and it's important not to, to lose sight of that. So after that posting, back to Ireland for a while? Yeah, back to Ireland for three years after that. And, uh, yeah, and did a few different, uh, a few different jobs there. Continued to do EU work uh, on the political side, uh, for the initial, um, year or so after I went back. And then I was promoted and I worked as our director on the Balkans and then on the UN as well. And subsequently from that then went to, went to New York to our mission to the UN, which was a fascinating experience. Well, before we let you get to New York, like one of the things again that strike me as the life of a diplomat, you know, finding a partner, mustn't be that easy because <laughs> you're here and there and then you get a posting you're into a long distance relationship yeah it's a, it is quite a it's quite a disruptive light in that sense for for people and i often feel for partners and spouses and indeed sometimes for kids too it can be it can be quite tricky i mean just to sketch in a little background in relation to myself and Anne, um we actually go back to before my time in the department so when i worked um when i worked in accenture as a consultant you would often work on client sites for for you know for months at a time and i worked on a big, uh, it was mainly kind of change management work, but it was a big IT job that Accenture did in Dublin at the time for what was the, the IT head office of Power Supermarkets in um, in Dunleary, which uh, was a big IT operation that ran their, their sort of nationwide IT, Power Supermarkets, having been Quinsworth and then later went on to be Tesco, just to explain to people what that is. And Anne actually worked there on the IT side, Anne is an IT systems analyst by training, and worked there at the time. So, of course, it's very strict rules and your consultant you can't go out with a client so uh, so we we uh, we obeyed those and we didn't actually start going out till after I was finished on the project but that was where we met um, and I actually said that to uh, to Pat Quinn down in Toronto just to, to give him a laugh that we you could say in a manner of speaking we met in Quinsworth you know uh, <laughs> once or twice removed but uh, yeah, so that's where that's where we met. And Anne actually, uh, we weren't married initially when we went to Denmark, but we were going out. And Anne uh, got a job working for Ericsson, the, um, the telecoms people in Copenhagen. So she worked in a Danish company, in effect. Um, but it is difficult, and you know, and we, you know, people have different stories in our, in our business, and it's uh, you know, there's a lot of sacrifices involved for partners and spouses in terms of their in terms of their career. And I think it's a it's a real challenge. 
actually, not just for ourselves, but for foreign services and diplomatic services more generally uh, in an era, you know, where where obviously people are depending on two careers and uh, and two salaries increasingly uh, to manage those kind of challenges as well. It's really it's a, it's an increasing issue for for foreign ministries. So we were fortunate, and I was very fortunate in in meeting Anne, and that Anne was uh, Anne was prepared to travel and to and to you know to take the the, the different aspects of the life that that go with it. Um, so she, uh, we we were married actually between um, the posting in Denmark and the posting in Brussels. And our older daughter was actually born, uh, Orla was born in Brussels in 2003, and then our second child was born when we were back in Dublin in 2005. So uh, so they joined the they joined the travelling group as it were after that, and uh, so they've had the postings in New York and now here in in Ottawa. So yeah, it is a there are strains and stresses and challenges involved um, for for spouses, for partners, for families and all of this. And, you know, you have to sit down as a family uh, and discuss these things and decide, is this what we want to do? Will this work? And uh, and people handle these things in different ways. And so far for us, it's it's worked. And, you know, we're delighted to be to be here. There are, you know, Canada is a wonderful, welcoming place and people have been have been extremely kind and the girls have settled really, really well into school, which has helped. And we, we're hopeful that'll, that'll continue to be the case. So let's move on to the UN. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the UN was was an interesting experience. We were five years in New York, which I should say in the first instance, of course, an extraordinary city. So living in New York for five years just as an experience is is, is something something very special. The UN itself, I was uh, the role I had there was was as the deputy permanent representative, so the deputy ambassador, if you like. And we have a much bigger mission in New York than than certainly any of the other missions I've served in. So where we would have say three diplomats here and three in Copenhagen, we have have about 10 or 11 full-time in, in New York, plus another four or five temporary staff who will come in for busy periods as well, and we have a military attaché. So really the way it works in, in our mission in New York is that the permanent representative, the ambassador, is, if you like, the representative in a literal sense, so it's a very outward-facing job, and the job of the deputy then really, in a par- apart from you know the policy work that the deputy does, is also to run the mission on a day-to-day basis. It's a big mission with a lot of moving parts. So that was that was a great experience, both in a substantive uh, sense in relation to negotiations and policy issues such as the Middle East and all sorts of other things, but also in a managerial sense. And you know, management is such an important part of our job. Um, you know, I always say if you work in any organization with more than two people in it, you probably have some kind of management role, you know, and uh, that's increasingly uh, the case for diplomats. And it's something that wouldn't have been as strongly recognized when I started out, I have to say, in the organization, but it's much more, it's, it's understood uh, much better, I think, how important that management role is now. So what areas would you see as highlights of your five years at the UN uh, yeah, that you I would have been working on? Th- there were there were so many different things. I mean, one of your roles as the deputy deputy permanent representative is to have oversight of all of the work really done in the mission, which crosses you know development cooperation, human rights, disarmament, um, political work at the Security Council on Syria, the Middle East, a whole range of things. So you need to have a pretty you need to have a pretty broad appetite for reading, for policy, and for all of that detail. Which, as I say, being somebody who's always been a bit of a a nerd for these things, suits me suits me pretty well. And again. It's, it was a busy, busy, long hours job. I mean, the one thing about multilateral work, though, is that your weekends, other than in a sort of an emergency situation at the Security Council, were by and large, you know, reasonably free. But but it's it's long nights other than that. So you really have to enjoy it. And I must say, I, I, I enjoyed it very much. I did a lot of work personally on Middle East issues, on the Security Council as well, as well as that kind of management role. And then I suppose one of the big highlights for us while we were there, we had two years campaigning for Ireland to join uh, what was then quite new Human Rights Council in Geneva, which is you know a very important key uh, UN body, and it was a very competitive election uh, for this. We were running against the US and Germany and Sweden and Greece, and there were only two or three seats available. So this was serious competition, and it's uh, you know it's it's retail politics and it's policy as well. So that took up a, a great deal of our time over a two-year period, um, working with colleagues in Dublin, in Geneva, where the, the Human Rights Council is based, and all across our 
our system to, you know, to lobby for support and to explain to people why it was that Ireland should be on the Human Rights Council. And that was a successful election for us, even in difficult circumstances. And at a time when, you know, you're talking about at the, the depth of the financial crisis, uh, Austin, so in 2011, 2012, when reputationally we'd really taken a hit. So we felt in a small way at the UN that it was an important, you know, if not as contribution to showing that, you know, Ireland was still engaged globally despite our problems at home, that we still cared about issues like human rights and that we were ready to, to play our part internationally in, in addressing those. And, you know, we worked very closely and it's all about teamwork, of course. It's, not, it's never a question of an individual in these situations. So we're working very closely with the permanent representative and with colleagues in Dublin and Geneva. A lot of my role was to kind of strategize around that campaign uh, and, uh, and and to, to sort of drive the train a little bit, if you like, from, from from New York, and that was a great success for us, and we were we were very pleased about that. Your colleague uh, Michael, I know when I spoke to him, uh, he was involved with the landmine. Uh, yes, indeed, yeah, topic yeah. In, uh, at the UN, and I found it fascinating as well, like that a country like Ireland uh, was as influential as it turned out to be on that particular file. Yeah, no, absolutely. Uh, Michael has a lot of experience with disarmament, and I did some work on disarmament myself while I was there. I think it's a very good example, actually, Austin, of 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 where a small country like Ireland can can make a difference. I mean, where we start from on all this, I always say to people, you know, when you look at international politics and you look at these sorts of issues, you need to think of Ireland, you know, as if you like, we're we're, we're almost in a situation where we, you know, we're like a, a cork bobbing on the open sea. We need the sea to be as calm as possible for our interests to prosper, for our people to prosper. We need as calm an environment as we can have. So that means, and in, the, in areas like disarmament, that means we can't afford to simply sit back and hope that somebody else will try and make progress there. We should play our part and do what we can within our, within our means and our resources. So we try to find areas like that, like human rights, like disarmament, you know, areas where, you know, where we believe we have important values to bring to the debate um, where we believe we can work with others like Canada, for example, who share those values to try to have better outcomes internationally. Uh, because in the end of the day, uh, you know, a rules-based international order uh, for a small country is a, is a prerequisite for, you know, not only in a political sense for our well-being, but for, for our prosperity too. If you're a, a small country who lives on your, your capacity to trade internationally, then you want, as I say, the environment to be a, as calm and as orderly and as fair as possible. You mentioned trade internationally. Well, before we start talking about international trade and CETA, um, we're going to come to Canada, but we'll go for another piece of music before we do. Okay. Um, well, I suppose the next one I would like to mention is a band that, uh, that I spent a lot of time uh, following and that I, I always found was a, an absolutely tremendous live band. I'd say the best live act I've ever seen, really, in some ways, is just Moving Hearts, which, if you like, was a, a sort of a development, a very interesting development, I felt, at the time, you know, with Roots and Planksty and the Bothy Band, and obviously there was a kind of a moving cast, if you like, Christy Moore, uh, Mick Hanley, Flo McSweeney, all lead singers at different stage, but I always felt, again, that it was Moving Hearts instrumentals, which brought together not only a sort of, if you like, a folk music base, but threw in all sorts of different elements on top of Ilham Pipes and, and, and guitar and bass. You had saxophone as well. You had Donald Lunny on bazooki. And I think Donald Lunny is, to my mind, you know, in some ways the great genius for his music and the, the common thread in all of these things in the Bobby Band and Planksty and in Moving Hearts as well. So uh, I spent a lot of time uh, in the in Moving Hearts' heyday uh, going to their gigs and I got to see them when they, when they had, a, if you like, a sort of a comeback gig there in, in recent years in Vicker Street. And uh, I just think they're, uh, they have a tremendous power live in particular. And uh, the track I've chosen here is one of their, their earlier instrumentals, uh, McBride's. back to Radio Irish Radio Canada and we're chatting to Ambassador Jim Kelly and we've been hearing about his career up until his appointment to Canada in August of 2016. Um, 
maybe it's time to say welcome to Canada. <laughs> Thanks, awesome. So, uh, you arrived in August, uh, took up your posting, and uh, have had a chance to uh, get your feet wet, get a sense mm-hmm. of the uh, community, the atmosphere, the issues, uh, people's um, ambitions and goals, and what, what the, the whole scene is like. How have you found things so far? Yeah, it's been it's been really interesting and really positive, Austin. I I think is the is the first thing I, I'd want to say. I mean, anytime you move to a new country and a new job, there is a, a period of adjustment involved as you kind of find your 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 feet. Um, I have to say we've been greatly helped and assisted in that regard by the the really warm welcome that we've received from the the Irish community here in Ottawa, uh, and indeed from 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 Canadians that that I've met too. I mean, I'm obviously you know still doing a round, if you like, of courtesy calls here in Ottawa on uh, on people in the foreign ministry, other ambassadors, political people, and so forth. And one thing that that comes across all the time is the is the high regard in which Ireland and Irish people are held here, and that's a really it's a really gratifying thing to see. And I know that that's that's not something that's, that's accidental, and that it's very much rooted in the in the shared history that we have, in the the deep historical ties that are there, and the bonds of friendship. And you know, as I, in the first few months, I've had the opportunity to to see for myself uh, and learn a little bit more about what's you know what's behind all that. It's one thing reading the history, and it's another experiencing experiencing these kind of ties in person. I mean, as we know, Canada has been a staunch friend to Ireland in, in good times and bad. Uh, going back many centuries, but what's very striking is just how visible the reminders of this shared history are. I mean, I've had the I've had the privilege to to go to a couple of different uh, very poignant memorials to the famine since I got here. The Ireland Park on Erin Key in Toronto, for example, the uh, memorial at Martindale in the Gatineau Hills. I know you were there that day yourself at the at the at the the, the, the launch of the new the new monument there. And you know, when you visit these places, I think it really brings the history to life and brings home to you the deep connections and you know the 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 different emotions that underlie those connections i mean when you consider the ordeals that you know that the famine Irish went to through, and uh, you know finding a home, a welcoming home in Canada, um, it's not surprising that the the bonds of friendship are, are so strong. And it's not just historic as well. I mean, you, we can see in our work here uh, in the embassy when we look around the the presence of the the newer Irish communities in Canada, uh, all over the country in Toronto, and Vancouver, and here and elsewhere, uh, who came here here during the the difficult uh, years of financial crisis in the last decade. Um, when Canada was prepared to offer them the opportunity for a, for a new life under you know different programs, the the IC, the International Experience Canada program, and many of the people who came, I know, will have gone on to to permanent residency. And on our side as well, I think Ireland has you know sought to be a good friend to Canada. I mean, I've spoken about the shared values we have, and we worked very closely in my time in New York with our Canadian colleagues as well. And you know, I think I'm fortunate to be coming into a post where um, we have that strong foundation, which builds as well. I should say on the work of of of, of you know my predecessors um, you know Ray Bassett and Declan Kelly and and others who've served here over the years and I see it very much a, a, as my role here Austin to to try to to lead if you like the the next phase of strengthening those relations and to try to help build closer links you know whether they be economic political cultural people to people links uh, between our our two countries uh, and I mean on that I suppose one thing I would say is I mean, we're I say we're we're blessed with a, a strong and a deep foundation for that kind of bilateral relationship. And it's not something to be taken for granted because it isn't available to every country here. But what I've always found about about relationships, whether they're between people or countries, or whether they're they're weak or strong, is that they always need work. You only you only get out what you put in, and it's important not to to take them for granted. So we're not going to be sitting on our laurels, and we're going to we're we're already actively looking at ways to kind of develop that relationship in a in a closer way and, and sustain it in the in the years to come on a contemporary basis. Tan Changa Bio in Canada, on show. Would the, the Irish language is alive and well over here. Did that surprise you? 
Uh, Colour Migrache, yeah, yeah. Well, no, what did surprise me, I suppose, as I say, I, I was quite involved a very long time ago in the kind of, on the language side at home. Um, I wouldn't have been aware, and it probably wasn't the case then, of course, because it's so long ago, but I wouldn't have been aware that there was a, a Gwaeltacht, um here in Canada, and it really is the only sort of sustained Gwaeltacht outside uh, Ireland, as far as I'm aware. So it's great to see that, and uh, I'm looking forward to, uh, I'm looking forward to visiting that. One of the, one of the big issues I have here, Austin, I have to say that I've discovered, um, from time to time you get little reminders of the size and scale of this country. I think I said to, I said it to you, I think I said quite early on, to, to some of the people I spoke to here, if I could figure out a way of cloning myself and placing copies all over the country, I think I'd be uh, I'd do my job far more effectively than it would be possible to do with only one of me. So there's a there's a challenge with with all of that. But uh, you know, I've a, I've a real appetite for that, and I'm I'm looking forward to uh, I'm looking forward to to getting out all over the country and, and visiting visiting communities and uh, and and to being being to having the embassy present in that sense. A big aspect of the relationship between Ireland and Canada and Europe and Ireland, of course, is the uh, is CETA. And CETA was the aspirations were that it would have been signed off and signed, mm. sealed, and delivered by now, but it ran into a few little bumps along the road. Um, it's seen there were mixed views, I know, on both sides of the Atlantic. Some Canadians are. Um, apprehensive of it and I know there were I- Irish people uh, some of the farming community were apprehensive a- about it but it's finally inching its way to implementation uh, something that's positive for both sides you would see yeah I believe it I believe it will be Austin I mean it, it, Interesting. One of one of the one of the the highlights of the few months I've had so far, and there there were quite a few. And I can come back to them if you want. But well, one one of the highlights was the for, for me was the Ireland Canada Business Summit um, in Dublin, the end of October, um, which was you know organised by the the Business Association there, and Canada Business Association in Dublin, working with the chambers here and with the department and and others. And we hosted an Ivy House, and both our minister Charlie Flanagan and uh, the former Quebec Premier Jean Charest uh, spoke at that. And I spoke myself as well, and we had very good we had very good attendance at that, and it really gave me a sense of the of you know the potential that there may be to to build on the existing trade links that we have. And it was kind of ironic that the day that that took place was the day that uh, that word came through. It was actually I found myself making a speech in which I had to to figure out exactly what to say about the likelihood of the agreement being signed, uh, and then sat down afterwards and saw a text that it had in fact been signed. So thankfully I took an optimistic take on it, which turned out to have been to have been vindicated, but. Uh, but yeah, so it, it's been a long and, and difficult process, and you identify, uh, as you said, that to some extent it became tangled up in some of the broader concerns, if you like, around trade agreements, um, which are very focused, to be honest, on the proposed TTIP agreement between the EU, EU and the United States, and the, um, where there were real concerns, if you like, uh, about the extent to which, um, you know, just given the US's market power, about what it would mean for smaller businesses in the European Union in particular sectors. I'm not sure that the concerns um, can be seen to apply in quite the same way uh, with Canada, but um, but nonetheless, I know there are people who have you know who have who have doubts about trade agreements. Like we believe, you know, we're a small, as I say, trading nation that lives on its capacity to export, and we believe there are huge opportunities uh, for Ireland in this, and we believe there, you know, that it's a two-way street. There are major opportunities for Canada too. But if you just think about the scale of, of what's in, involved, Austin, I mean, it's the first, you know, it's seen as a kind of a new generation of trade agreements which incorporates things like sustainable development which are very important as well um, and you know you're talking about a, an agreement that will um, that on the Canadian side for example will give the Canadians preferential access to a market of 500 million people worth you know 16, 16 and a half trillion euro and for us in Ireland gives us uh, and, and for the European Union gives us for the first time you know tariff-free effectively access to the Canadian market uh, and for us in Ireland as we look around and indeed also as we deal with Brexit for example and we look at the possibility for diversification um, we think there are a lot of different sectors you know pharmaceuticals chemicals financial services and software um, education food and drink uh, engineering where there will be real opportunities now um, that wouldn't have been available before, and we hope that, uh, and this is something that our, our, you know, trade promotion agencies uh, are working on as well. But we hope that uh, that CETA can act as a catalyst to try to take um, 
the trade and business and economic links between Ireland and Canada to the next level. And one of the things that I, you know, will be prioritizing in my first year here, Austin, as I said, one of the things I want to do is to spend the time getting out around the country, visiting communities and going to, to provincial capitals and talking to people in government and in business and to get that message out there that, you know, that Ireland, you know, we've been very pro this agreement from the beginning, from the, over its eight years of, uh, before it came to pass, and now that you know it has been signed and will be provisionally applied, um, we're keen to see it be a catalyst for closer, closer trade and uh, for people to be able to avail of those opportunities. So that'll be a key part of my messaging in, in travelling around the country in the coming year. So Jim, you did mention that there's been a few highlights since you arrived. What would you see so far? Yeah, I suppose I mentioned there the the summit in Dublin, and I mean that would that would have been a that would have been a, a big highlight. And you know we had a number of other good um, good uh, if you like events with with chambers, including for example the the 25th anniversary of the the Chamber of Commerce, the Irish Canadian Chamber of Commerce in Montreal, uh, which uh, they had a dinner before Christmas, which I spoke at as well. And you know we've had the chance at the embassy as well to to to, to do events with with other chambers, and that's something that we want to do to do more of. And then obviously I know for for people I only arrived at the tail end of it, but the whole 1916 commemorations have been a huge uh, you know have been a huge part of the year for Irish people here and all over all over the world. And I mean I'm looking I asked when I came here to see the level of the embassy involvement, um, and I think it you know I, I think we can be quite proud uh, of the extent to which we were able to kind of support events, but more than that, the community around the country should be really proud of, of the, the scale and diversity of events that were put on to, to mark the year. I mean, in terms of, of what I got to see of it myself, I suppose there were two events in the months after I came that stood out. Firstly, uh, we had the opportunity, Anne and I, to go to Toronto to see, for the opening night of the, the Abbey Theatre's wonderful production of, of The Play on Stars, and I couldn't believe when I heard that it had been more than 25 years since the Abbey had come to Canada, so before they left, I made them promise that they'd come back a bit sooner than that. Uh, but that was a great event and very well received and the Abbey went on to do a very successful uh, tour as well in, in, in uh, down the east coast into the US uh, of, of the plough too. So I think that was a that was a real highlight. And then the second was the, the Canadian Association for Irish Studies Conference on the Rising and its aftermath, which uh, which we had the, the honour to host in the, in the residence in October. We had uh, you were you were there yourself, I know, Austin, and we had a, a wonderful lineup of, of speakers, as you know. And I was particularly delighted, as I said, you you know, one of the great things about this job is you get to to meet many of the people you admire in different fields. And, and I was delighted to meet so many uh, of the the excellent academics and people who were written on it, uh, written on the Rising and on its aftermath, both in Ireland and Canada, and in particular the, for me the chance to meet Joe Lee, who I think is you know, one of the finest Irish historians of the of of, of the period, uh, and to have him give the opening keynote lecture was, I think, a real uh, a real highlight for us as well. So, Jim, that's coming after off a hundred years of uh, Irish the Irish uprising. We're in Canada's hundred and fiftieth, and I know that the Canadian government and the city of Ottawa are all working to make it a fantastic year and that there will be an involvement from the various embassies, including the Irish Embassy. Yeah, that's right, Austin. Uh, we're very much looking forward to it. And, and you know, it's, it's, a, it's a huge year for Canada. But we also think there's an opportunity now to, to mark the the huge contribution which the Irish community has made to to building Canada, if you like, both historically and, and in terms of the, the contemporary country that there is uh, that we have today celebrating 150 years as a nation. So we're going to have involvement. We've, we've been talking to the city here and to the National Capital Commission, and we're going to be involved in a couple of events in particular, as a couple of initiatives that, are, that we're involved in. One is that we will be taking part in a program uh, called Ottawa Welcomes the World, uh, in which the city have offered the opportunity for embassies, uh, for individual countries' embassies, to use uh, one of the pavilions in Lansdowne, uh, Lansdowne Park, um, and if you like, to showcase the country for a day. So we'll be doing that actually on Bloomsday, as it happens, is the day that we've been able to get. So we're looking forward to to working with um, community and cultural groups here and indeed or, you know, around the country as to what we will put together. There's something Liz Kyo, our cultural attaché here, is working on, and she's already talking to, to representatives of groups about this. And, you know, we foresee a kind of extensive Irish community involvement, and we're hoping to have interactive presentations showcasing our history, our heritage, um, our culture, 
and we'll have Tourism Ireland and Enterprise Ireland we hope involved in that as well. So I think that should be a that should be an excellent event. And then another initiative that we're involved in comes later in the year in the second half of August, um, where we'll be presenting an exhibition on the Irish diaspora in Canada, kind of a history if you like, from before the famine to the present day. And we'll have an exhibition space in the city for two weeks with that. And we hope, again, we're in the early stages of putting this together and Liz is putting together a group of representatives of organisations to talk about this and to, to think about the content. But the sort of thing we're thinking about here is, you know, trying to highlight and showcase the community's contribution to the arts, to political life, to sport and so on in Canada, and maybe also to include, you know, stories, particular example stories and local interest stories of immigrants across Canada. So those are two of the two of the initiatives that we see at this stage, Austin. And I know it's going to be a very busy year and there'll be a lot of different things I'm sure announced. And in that context, I mean to mention as I'm speaking to you now, but this is something Liz will be in touch with uh, community groups about, but we'd obviously be very interested in being kept posted on any plans that individual groups have to to celebrate the year and we've had a little bit of contact about, about things like that as well. So I think it'll be a very big year in that sense and you know we're hoping as well as part of uh, this year that we may try and, and be able to, to, to have one or two political visits, whether they'll be connected directly to those events or not, I don't know, but it will be, I'm, I'm conscious that Canada has been a little bit underweight for various reasons over the last couple of years in terms of political visits. There was no ministerial visit at all uh, in 2016, so, you know, we're pressing the case, um, we're pressing the case to try to, uh, to change that situation in 2017. There are some constraints, including in terms of the the political, political arithmetic, they like the doll. It's a minority government, so it can be difficult to uh, it can be difficult to generate uh, ministerial travel outside of St Patrick's Day and so forth. In that instance, but uh, but we're hopeful that we will be able to 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 put one or two things together in that context when we're talking to to, to people at home about that. I better let you go because we have been uh, talking longer than I I had asked for. So you've generously given of your time. So we're going to have another piece of music to see us out. Okay, Austin. Well, look, thanks very much for uh, thanks very much for uh, taking the time to talk to me, and I just want to to wish you and all the listeners uh, a happy new year. And uh, just to say how much we're delighted to be here, uh, all of the whole family, and I'm looking forward to to working w- with you and to working with the community in Ottawa and throughout Canada in the coming year. And I hope we'll have a we'll have a very good and successful uh, successful year together. So I think I'll suggest by way of finishing, perhaps something that's some that kind of a Dublin anthem, if you like. And I say I'm a big Dublin GAA fan, um, and this has become something of a theme, if you like, for Dublin GAA in recent years, and it's generally played uh, after uh, after Dublin win matches in Crow Park. Um, Tin Lizzy are a group I'm always very fond of, not least, I think, because Phil Linnett um, came from Crumlin, which is not too far from where I grew up, and he's an extraordinary man when you consider uh, growing up as he did in, in the Crumlin of the 1950s. He was a, he was a man of power and uh, a very talented musician and uh, and songwriter and he had a he had a troubled life i know and uh but at the same time, I think he left us behind a real legacy in terms of in terms of his music and in terms of his talent. And uh, I suppose his most successful song of all, and the one that registered in the US even as well, was "The Boys Are Back in Town." So, uh, so maybe to finish with that, Austin. And thanks again, Ambassador Jim Kelly. Thank you very much indeed. It's been an 